Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh. And today we're talking about relapse. And specifically, I'm taking you behind the scenes with one of my favorite radio personalities to share his recent experience with relapse. And the reason I wanted to do this episode is, you know, I read the other day, they say something like 75% of people relapse in their first year of sobriety. And there are so many lessons, mistakes, missteps that we can make along the way. And Along with that, there is also so much clarity and insight that you can gain from that experience, even when it doesn't feel great, even when you want to judge the relapse as bad. Relapse is feedback. This is an opportunity to learn something. And maintaining the effort in your recovery to avoid a relapse can feel like a lot for anybody. And we're talking to a guy who had a couple of years sober, great kids, friends, and a job that brings a lot of praise and a lot of fun. But even with all of that, relapse will always have a front row seat for any of us in sobriety. We're talking to Scott Parks today from Dana and Parks. He's sharing all the details from pre-planning his relapse to the insanity of hiding all the empty bottles from himself because he doesn't even live with anybody and he was still hiding the bottles and how his co-host and his family came together and did an intervention that changed everything. A few simple words from his daughter gave him the clarity he needed to get help and get back on the sober track. And you know, my favorite part of this story is his honesty and openness with his audience. He came forward and shared his story, giving us the truth and allowing us to support him as strangers. And at the same time, providing hope for all of those still suffering people who need to hear that we do recover and we can come back after a relapse. He's rebuilding his sobriety one day at a time, and he's here to tell you how he's done it so far. Let's go ahead and jump into today's episode with Scott Parks. Mr. Scott Parks, thank you so much for being here. You know, you and Dana really do have my favorite show in Kansas City, and I have dubbed you guys the best radio show in Kansas City. Going to try to stay humble about it, but yes, the, the show's very popular. And thank you for having me, by the way. It's, it's an honor to be with you. Um, yeah, the show does very well, and I'm not worried where my next meal's coming from. I just, I, I thought there was a new way, there had to be a new way to do talk radio, something that wasn't on every AM radio station across the country, and I just wanted to do a show about life, kind of like a radio version of Seinfeld, a show about nothing, that, that people could just listen to on their way home and, and just zone out. You just got done working eight, nine, ten hours at a job you can't stand, you're going home to your wife or your husband, and you kind of like them some days and you don't on other days, and the kid's got to go to soccer and the other one's got to go to dance, and you just need 15 minutes to take a break. And that's what Dana and I do. It's not rocket science. Radio is not rocket science. You just have to be nice, and you have to be entertaining, and you have to be interesting. But if you can do those three things, be nice, be entertaining, and be interesting, people will listen. They just want to know that somebody else is in the car with them and they're not driving home alone. It's great to have you here. So let's backtrack a little bit. Take a minute and tell everybody a little bit about you. I'll give you the Reader's Digest. I, I was born at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, my dad was a career military officer. Uh, we traveled everywhere. And I think that played a huge role in, in what I ended up doing with with my life as far as a career is concerned. But um, born in Georgia, we lived, we did three tours in Texas. Uh, we did one tour in Anchorage, Alaska, and two tours in Germany. In the military, you just stay where you stop. And my dad's last assignment was at Fort Leavenworth. And 
you know, when he retired, you know, I was in college and you graduate from college and you don't have a hometown to go back to. So you just stay where you are. And I was, I was here. So I just stayed in Kansas city for the rest of my life. Wow. How do you think all of the moving around impacted you as a young person? Well, when you grow up in the military, you just think that that is the way everybody else lives because it's so, for those of you listening, who've been in the military or who grew up in the military, you know, the, the bases are, are so isolated in and they're, they're their own functioning little cities. If you don't want to leave base, you don't ever have to leave base. And so we just thought growing up, that's just the way people lived. You just move around all the time. But what it did for me, I think, as far as, you know, who I became and what I became, I had to learn how to be very social and you had to be able to make friends very quickly. And that ended up playing a role in what I do for, for a living, which is talk to people I don't know, uh, I don't know personally, at least. And it, it makes you have to be gregarious. You have to be or you'll fail. If, when you're growing up in the military, you're going to be the kid at the end of the lunch table with nobody sitting around him. So you better learn to make friends really quickly. I, I, I had never gone to a civilian school until I was a junior in high school. Every school I ever went to was a Department of Defense school or a private international school. And um, when we stopped, we, my dad and mom ended up getting a house in Lansing. And I went to Lansing High School. And I was one of just a couple of military kids in the entire school. And these kids had all known each other since they were born. And here I am, the new kid on the block. I mean, I was the new kid on the block. And But in the military, every time you go to a school, a third of the school is new kids on the block. You just, everybody's looking to make friends real quick. And, and I, I think that had a huge impact on, on how and what I became. What about insecurities, anxiety, like we know anybody with alcoholism or addiction, there are all of these underlying tenants, right? Anxiety really being the common one, regardless of what the feeling is, everything kind of manifests in anxiety. How do you think all of the moving around, being the new kid on the block all of the time, like, did it create some of those insecurities and anxiety? I don't know so much about anxiety as much as it was insecurity. You know, and I'm still, even though on the radio, I'm very open. I don't care what people know about me, but I am, you know, in my private life, I'm horribly insecure. Still to this, I'm 52 years old and I'm still insecure. I, I, I won't listen to my own show. I can't stand it. I, when I, when I have heard the show and I think I may have listened to, and this is not an, an exaggeration, I, I've probably listened to an hour of the show in my entire life. And we've done tens of thousands of hours and I just don't like it. And, and, and I, I, there are times where I, I think, Oh, that when we're doing it live, I like the show. Don't get me wrong. I, I think the show is interesting. I think it, there are times when we'll go to break and I'm like, Oh, that was funny. Um, but when I hear it played back and I don't know if it's because I already know what I'm going to say or what Dana's going to say or, or what the caller is going to say, I don't find it entertaining. I don't find it interesting at all, and so I can't listen to myself. But that insecurity um, in private life, I, I, there are times when I'll be in a store and I, I can tell that somebody recognizes me and because there's a certain look. And it, it, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And you can't go up to them and go, hey, how you doing? Because maybe, maybe you read it wrong, and they have no idea who you are, and now you're just the creepy white guy who just walked up to some lady in a store and introduced yourself. And uh, it does not take much to be a creepy guy to a girl. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm sure it's very easy. No, I can relate to that as well. Even from the podcast, you know, when I travel and stuff, I go to uh, recovery meetings everywhere I go, right? Which is, of course, where the, I'm, there are going to be listeners to my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what you're saying. Like, there's a look. There's a certain look like you recognize like somebody's... They'll do the double take. Do the double take. Yeah. They keep glancing your way. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but you doing what I do, I mean, sometimes we get into some controversial topics. I, there was one time, I'll never forget, I was at the grocery store and I, I got a look. And this guy wanted to kill me. I mean, he was mad. And 
I'm just like, hey, how you doing? And he just, he wouldn't even talk. To, I We were right across the aisle from each other at checkout. And he looked up and clearly recognized me and gave me this death stare. My God, I could have been six feet under from that stare. And I'm just, I just looked at him. I go, hey, how you doing? And he, he didn't even respond and just went back to checking out his groceries. And I'm like, this guy hates me. I'm going to wait in here for about 30 minutes before I go back out to the car. So when it comes to your drinking, how did you start drinking? Like, were you super young? Did you love it from the first time? How did it all start for you? I walked into Eichbaum's bar when I was 14 years old in downtown Heidelberg, Germany. And I was with a friend of mine uh, who I actually just saw last a uh, couple months ago. Uh, he's a, he was a teetotaler then and a teetotaler now, but everybody in, you know, in high school, the, in Germany, the drinking age is 16, but they don't care. And so everybody from our high school hung out at a bar called Ike bombs. And we went down to Ike bombs and I went up to the bar cause I had never had a beer in my life, but I wanted to be cool. Cause everybody in there was drinking and they looked like they were having a lot of fun. So I go up to the bar and at the time I was pretty fluent in German and I, in German, I asked for a beer, and the, I remember the bartender looked at me and he said, "Are you 16?" And I said, "Abenatulik," which means, of course. And he handed me a beer, and I took a sip of it, and I loved it from the first taste. I, I had I had found I had found something I had always been looking for, and I finished that beer. I ordered a second one, and German beers are stronger, and they serve them in much bigger glasses uh, than they do here in the states. And by the end of that second one, I was wasted, out of my mind wasted, and I loved it. I loved the feeling of being out of control. It, it was so exciting to be out of control. And I, I wasn't like a problem drinker. Well, now let's, let's, let me rewind the tape on that. I was a problem drinker even in high school. I, I didn't drink every day. I wasn't you know, a, a day drinker right out of the gate. But I've never had a social drink in my life. I've never been out and had one beer. I can't do it. And it, I was even like that when I was young. I, I, I would always be the first kid to pass out at a party. I was always the first. And it, it, it was a running joke when I was young. You know, okay, here goes Scott. You know, we'll, he'll, be, he'll be out by 11. And I would be, you know. And they would party till 2, 3 in the morning, and I'd be passed out in bed by 11 o'clock. I, I cannot drink socially. I've, and it, it was a... It was always an issue for me because as as my alcoholism progressed and, and in adulthood, if I would be invited to some sort of, you know, business function or, um, you know, friends invite you over to watch the Chiefs or something on the weekend, I had to be really careful um, because if I would start drinking, I would embarrass myself. I would embarrass my then wife. This was even in my 20s. I, I knew probably by my mid to late 20s that I had a problem. I had a big problem. And I didn't care. I just didn't care. Um, I remember sitting in the driveway of, of a friend's uh, one time. And we had been friends since high school at Lansing. And we were in our 30s at this point. And it's middle of the afternoon on a Saturday. And we're drinking in the driveway. And I turned to him and I, I'll, I'll just say his name's Tom, but it's not. Um, I, said, I said, Tom, you know, we're alcoholics. And he looked at me and he goes, ain't it fun? And uh, I said, yeah, it is. And I just didn't care. I didn't care that I was becoming an alcoholic. I think so many people can relate to that too. But like, because I don't think in that moment, it's like, I remember as young as 25, having my first conscious thought, like, mm -hmm. oh, I think I have a- I drink, I drink differently. I, I drink differently, mm -hmm. right. But I had no idea the monster it would turn into. And I had no idea how difficult it would be to stop, right? And I think that plays a role in some of that not caring because I feel like, especially for me, I feel like I had it in the back of my head that at some point I would just stop. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't yes. know it was gonna be a big freaking situation <laughs> that mm -hmm. was life altering, right? I just thought, okay, one day I'll have to stop. And I left it at that. but. I think that plays a part in the recklessness of it too and, and continuing to go into it because you just have no idea really what you're facing until you try to quit. I, I'm with you. 
I too remember, and you you reminded me of something around that time when I told Tom that I was afraid we were becoming alcoholic, and remembering not caring. I also remember thinking to myself, there will come a day when I when I will have to stop because I could just tell over the years it was becoming more and more of an issue, and it dawned on me one time I was probably in my thirties, maybe late twenties, that I was I was starting to plan my life you know, my daily activities around where would I find a drink? If we're going to, if we're driving to Dallas, Texas today to go visit my aunt and uncle for Thanksgiving, when can I get that first drink? You know, if we're going to, obviously I can't drink while we're driving. We got the kids in the car and my mom's here. And, but I, I just remember thinking, I can't wait to get to my aunt and uncle's house because I'll be able to have a beer. And I just thought like you, when the day's going to come where it's going to get out of control, because I could feel it over the years just progressing, and it was starting to take over the way that I behaved and, and the places that I went. And I wouldn't go somewhere if I didn't think I could get alcohol there. And if I knew I couldn't get alcohol there, but I had to be there, I would drink before I went because I wouldn't be able to get through it. And I could just tell it getting worse and worse and worse. But I, like you, I remember thinking to myself, the day's going to come where it's going it's going to get out of control. And it's going to cost me something. And when that happens, I'll just stop. Well, it started costing me things. A marriage. It was starting to affect my work. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to start slowing down. I start drinking O'Doul's. This, this is the worst thing I ever did. And I'm kidding. I've done a lot of bad things. When I was, when I was married, and this would have been probably like 2006 or 7, my then wife and I were talking and, and we realized that I, I had a drinking problem and she said, well, why don't you, why don't you just stop? You know, every non-alcoholic spouse says, well, why don't you just stop? Well, okay, no problem. And I, I told her I was going to switch over to a, cause beer was my thing back then. It like every good alcoholic, it later became vodka right out of the bottle because it takes too much time to pour it in a glass. Um, and I remember telling her, I'll, I'll just switch to O'Doul's and I won't drink, I won't drink beer. I'll drink near beer. And I couldn't do it. So what I would do, this had to have cost me a fortune. I would go buy a six pack of O'Doul's in the morning after she had gone to work. And then I would buy a six pack of Bud Light. And because they're twist off bottle caps, I would sit there like a mad scientist over the sink while she was at work. And before I had to go in and I would pour out the O'Doul's and pour in very slowly the Bud Light, recap the O'Doul's, put it back in the six pack. And I did that with all six of the bottles. And then I would run down the street and throw the six pack of Bud Light in a trash can at a public park. When I would come home from work, I would drink a six pack of O'Doul's. Listen, my only experience with non-alcoholic beer is I drank it exactly like regular beer, right? So every time the waitress would come by, I'd order another one. And then I'm going to the bathroom every 20 minutes, right? It was just like drinking. And I had this realization in a moment, I was like, well... I'm starting to get irritated because I'm putting in the work of drinking the beers, but I'm not getting the effect. Mm -hmm. And it just started to kind of piss me off. And that's when I realized, and I was already sober, right? But that's when I realized that non-alcoholic, the non-alcoholic drink world is not for me. (laughs) It didn't make me want to go get a drink. You know, it wasn't triggering in that way, but it definitely agitated me enough that I wasn't going to continue pushing. Yeah. Uh, not alcoholic beer. I don't mind it. But when I was early in sobriety, this was years and years ago, uh, like you, I would drink it and I'm like, why am I bothering? You know, I'm I'm not losing control here. And that's the only reason I really like to drink. I don't dislike, I never disliked the taste of alcohol, but it was the effect of alcohol that that I was always chasing that out of control uh, feeling. The problem was the out of control feeling later led to my my entire life being out of control. And when the train went off the tracks, my God, it, I mean, it was it was devastating, you know. And, and I don't know where that day was. I, you couldn't give me calendars of the last twenty years and say pick out that one day where you com- completely went off the track. But there is a day in there somewhere. I could probably give you a year, uh, but there's a day in that year where my life went from, hey, you've kind of got it, 
you're, you're sort of kind of still in control to you are completely out of control. Either find a way to get back on that track or you're going to lose everything. Everything. And I damn near did. I like what you said where you could pinpoint a year, right? Like I mm-hmm. could definitely do that. I think I could pinpoint a moment of, and for women, it's usually an emotional event, right? Women will go, once we decide to go over the edge, (laughs) our demise happens a little more quickly. And it's typically an emotional event that nudges us that way. And mine was for sure, it was a really bad boyfriend and which of course was all I picked. I would have never picked a healthy guy to date because I wasn't healthy. So why would I pick a healthy guy? So I was just dating a really horrible person uh, who was very emotionally just exhausting, we'll say. (laughs) And that was a moment for me where I was like, F it. Like for me in my head, it's like I had sunk so low Mm -hmm. that I was accepting the behavior from this person and staying that I thought there's just no point in even trying to be better. Like I'm as low as I can get and I'm, I may as well just stay here. Apparently I'm going to stay here. You know, like my, I surprised myself at how willing I was to sell myself out and disappoint myself. Hmm. And that was kind of the moment that I was like, F it. I'm in. See, mine was more of a a moment of embarrassment uh, or shame would probably be a better word. But I'm not a fan of the of the term rock bottom because I don't I don't think there I believe there is a rock bottom, but I don't like the way that as alcoholics we sometimes try to pinpoint that one moment, that one incident in time where we had to turn it around. My rock bottom lasted for probably three years. I say exactly the same thing for sure. My rock yeah. bottom really was. But rock bottom really is an emotional place. Yeah, I think that's, that's where people get it yep. twisted is people think of it as an event. Mm-hmm. It's not an event. It's not something that happens to you. It's an emotional place you get to where you're like, oh, my gosh, like I can't I can't keep doing this. <laughs> like something has got to change. Mine, if, if I had to pick like a moment in time, probably the where, where I, I felt the most shame was, sh- was shortly after my divorce and I bought a house and it was a small little house, but it was cute. My daughters were pretty young. I would say one was in middle school. One might have been in elementary school. And they were starting to catch on that dad drank a lot. And we were, we were at the house and the bathroom was really tiny. And the, you, if you would stand at the vanity and look in the mirror, the shower would be right behind you. This bathroom was super tiny. And I was destroyed. And I was standing in the bathroom looking in the mirror like every alcoholic can tell you. I was looking in the mirror and I was talking to myself and I I was saying like, what have you done with yourself? Who have you become? I was trying to have like a come to Jesus meeting with myself. Right. And I'm just staring in the mirror, just horribly disappointed with myself. You know, your, my dad passed years ago, but he was my hero. And and I said, dad would be just so disappointed, you know, and I fell backwards into the tub and hit my head up against the wall. And I'm, you know, I'm drunk and got my legs out of the tub, my head's on leaning up against the back wall of the tub, and the girls come here, you know, when a 210-pound man falls backwards into a tub, it makes a noise. And the girls come running into the bathroom, and my youngest, Maya, said, Dad, Dad, are you okay? Are you okay? And my oldest, Sarah, this is, I'll never forget it. She looks down and she says, he's fine, Dad's just drunk again. And they walked out. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done with my life? And so if I had to pick a moment, yeah. that was the moment. That's when I knew this is out of control, yeah. totally out of control. It's so hard, I think, when you realize how much you're affecting the people around you. Mm-hmm. Because I never, I mean, of course, as alcoholics, we're super selfish, right? We're very self-absorbed. We're only thinking of us. And I'm only thinking of what I need and what I want to happen and who I want to see and what I want them to say. And you know, it's me, 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 me. And I just never had any ability to think about how my drinking was affecting the people that loved me. And I think it actually took me a couple of years into sobriety to really understand that. I think through amends, actually, because my sponsor, when I was doing amends, I have two little brothers that I helped raise, right? They're 10 and 12 years younger than me. So my whole teenage years were babies. And 
they both had health issues, right? So it wasn't a normal raising babies. It was a very stressful, sick, you know, there was a lot happening and, and God bless them. They're just one of the best things that ever happened to me. But when it came to amends, I had said to my sponsor, like, oh, I don't think I owe any amends to my little brothers because I lived in Los Angeles. Like a lot of my debauchery, I was <laughs> really far away. So it's not, nobody was affected by my insanity. They really didn't even know about it. But my sponsor looked at me and he said, really? He goes, do you think they wanted you to move to LA after you helped raise them? Do you think they wanted you to just leave them like that? And in that moment, I was like, oh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> that, that probably was not their desire <laughs> at that time. But it was just one of those little light bulb moments that I realized that everything I did, every choice I made had an impact on those people around me. Right. And I had never been able to recognize that before. When, when I was at my worst in active alcoholism, I, like many of you, I was an isolator drink, isolating drinker, almost like an animal that knows it's dying and it goes off into the woods by itself. And I knew I was dying. I was killing myself, slowly killing myself. And I would, I would almost exclusively drink alone, almost exclusively. And if I drank around people, they didn't know I was drinking because I would sneak off and drink and then come back out. But I remember, and I, I'm not even remotely close to finishing my amends, um, but one of the first amends that I gave, and like you, I didn't think I owed an amends. Because even though I was an alcoholic, I still am, I was a good dad. I, I can honestly say I, I was a good father. And I think I still am. I'm, I hope I'm a better father now. But I, I coached both of my daughters in soccer. All They never had another soccer coach, right? Well, other coaches, but I was always one of the coaches. Mm -hmm. But what I realized with my two daughters is – I did owe them an amends and it was, it was the amends of not being present, you know, uh, because I would be at, at their school events drunk. I was at all their school events, never missed one, but I was drunk. I went to a graduation drunk. My daughter's high school graduation. I went to a drunk. So I don't have kids. So I didn't know about a lot of this world until I started working, you know, with clients privately to get sober. And I start hearing all of these moms and dads talking about events with their kids' schools mm -hmm. and going to sporting events and how many people like have wine or it's like a, a kid's event and they schedule it at like the arcade bar so all the parents can drink. And yeah. I was like, wow, I didn't even know this was a world out there of drunken parents. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's an industry. I know now. It's yes. an industry. <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> So did you take breaks? Like so many of us, of course, will be like, oh, I need to just take 30 days off. I need to take a step back. Dry January. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have boot camp coming up for dry January. I do it every year. Um, but did you do that? Take breaks? Like I would even say I'm not even religious and I would always give up alcohol for Lent. <laughs> 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 I think it probably never lasted more than a day, but that I would say it. Uh, but did you have that, like multiple attempts at just taking a break, like trying to convince yourself you had some control? No. By the time I realized I needed to stop, I was full-blown alcoholic. Because like I said before, I mean, there was a time when I knew I was becoming alcoholic and I just didn't care. So I went, I, I, I didn't walk off the cliff. I ran off the cliff uh, screaming. Um, so by the time I started quitting because I, I didn't succeed the first time. It, it was to get sober. It was to stop drinking forever. The problem was, I thought I could do it myself. Uh, I'll just stop. You know, like we were talking about earlier. When the time comes, I'll just stop. I couldn't, I, I just could not stop. I would get a day, maybe two, if I was lucky, and then I was back at it. I, I didn't start actively trying to get sober until probably 2017. Around that time, I started having some success with getting sober and I would, I could get a month in and then I would go back out for a month and then I'd get two months in and then I'd go back out for a month, always telling everybody around me that I was still sober, uh, that I was working my program and everything was going great. But all the while going home at night because I was divorced 
I didn't have a significant other living with me and my kids were only there half the week. So on nights when I didn't have the kids and I was in one of my going out modes, uh, if I was alone, bar the door, Kate, cause it's coming off. And, um, I didn't successfully get sober until, uh, January of 2021. I'll never forget that morning. You know, of course the night before was new year's Eve and it was a very, it was a super snowy morning. Um, and I remember getting out of bed and the lady that I was seeing was on the verge of walking out. My kids were concerned. My mother was worried to death. And I remember getting on my hands and knees and I just begged God. It was over. It was, over. I begged him. I said, please take this obsession from me. I can't do it anymore. It's killing me. And I don't know what happened. For the first time in my life, quitting drinking, I won't say it was easy because it wasn't, but it was easier than it had been on, on previous attempts. And, and I was finally serious about it. I finally wanted to get sober instead of, you know, other people around me telling me you have to get sober. Or thinking you should. Yeah, right. And there were, there were people in my life, they're still in my life, you know, there were some who would come aggressively at me and say, you need to get sober. You're out of control. And then I, there's there's two groups of people who are non-alcoholic but that are in your life. There's And I have a couple who are were aggressive about it. And then most people come at you so timid. They're like, I think you might have a problem with drinking. And I think you might want to cut back a little bit. And, and they're nervous to talk to you about it. Yeah. You know, maybe it's because I'm an alcoholic. But if, if, if I thought somebody else in my family was alcoholic, I don't, I, well, I don't know which personality I would be. I've been intervened and it worked. Then you hear about people who say, you know, interventions don't work because if they don't want to get sober, you can't make them get sober. When I got intervened, I wanted to get sober. I just couldn't. I'll never, it was a quote from my daughter um, who told me, if you don't get sober, don't ever talk to me again. And that'll put things in perspective. I'll never forget the quote. She said, dad, you're my hero and my best friend. And I love you. But if you don't get sober, don't, don't ever talk to me again. And I looked at my brother and I said, start the car. You know, some people would take that as would really personalize that and play the victim, right? Like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that to me or treating me that way or threatening me like that. But the truth is the people around us have the right to have boundaries too. Mm -hmm right? Like it is, it does come to a place that it's so painful for them. Like they do have the right <laughs> to yeah. separate from us because it's just too hard or toxic or whatever the thing is, you know, it can well, be so many things. And we're so, as alcoholics, we can, especially active alcoholics, we can be so self-centered, Oh yeah, you know? And I thought I'm not hurting anybody. I'm hurting myself, but I'm allowed to hurt myself. Yeah. And why does anybody care yeah. if I'm hurting myself? Why do you care that when I come home from work and I don't have anybody staying at my house, that I sit here on the couch and drink vodka straight out of the bottle? I'm not driving around. I've already stocked up. I've stocked up for tomorrow morning to make sure that I have something to drink before the liquor stores open. Right. Um, what do you care what I'm doing on my own time if, I, if you're not around and I'm not out driving a, a car? Well, the fact of the matter is, it is impacting them. It is affecting them because they love you and they're, they're watching you slowly destroy yourself. And, and that watching someone that you love almost commit suicide at the most slow, painful yeah, way possible, a, a slow, yeah. painful to watch suicide does impact the, the people in your life horribly, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of my amends have been about that. I, I, I was never a mean and angry drunk. I was the happy-go-lucky drunk or just drink till I pass out drunk. You know, I'm not hurting anybody, but I am. And a lot of my amends have just been, I'm, you know, I, I don't say I'm sorry. I just say I offer you an amends for not being present, uh, for putting you through the torture of having to watch me try to kill myself because I couldn't live life. Right. There's a mutual friend of ours who always says, my life is my fault. Yeah. And that's true. And I, I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't, and I still struggle with this sometimes, I, I just couldn't live life on life's terms, to borrow a phrase. I sucked at it. 
I, you know, and this is not an original saying, but I was the manager of my own life and I had to fire myself mm-hmm. because I sucked at it. Mm-hmm. I'm terrible at managing my own life. <laughs> I promise you my best decisions should never have been trusted <laughs> about anything. <laughs> right. So you have had a, a setback recently, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear your situation, events, like what happened leading up to a relapse. How how did it affect you negatively and positively? Because I'm a person that believes that relapse really is a teaching tool. You know, it really is. It's just your recovery's way of saying your plan's not quite right. <laughs> we need to make some adjustments. Um, yes. So relapse doesn't freak me out so much. I think it really is just feedback. But I'd love to hear from you what your situation was, what led up to a relapse and how it's impacted you. I was uh, two and a half years sober, loving life. But there was a there was a trauma in the family and I saw the trauma coming down the road and I pre-planned my relapse. And I'll tell you why in just a second. I, I saw this trauma coming toward the family. And it was then I thought, if that happens, I'm going back out. I knew it. I was going back out. I was so committed to sobriety so long as the trauma didn't hit the family. But I knew if that trauma hits this family, I'm going out. And the problem is I made a classic alcoholic mistake. I put something above my sobriety, right? And I explained this to uh, someone recently. I said, when you put something above your sobriety, this is your sobriety right here. And I know, I know this is a podcast and they can't see it, but I'm holding my hands one above the other. Uh, when This is my sobriety, this lower hand, and this is something I put above my sobriety. When that collapsed, it collapsed right down onto my sobriety and my sobriety went down with it. And that was my, that was my biggest mistake. And I had heard for years, the first thing you put above your sobriety is going to be the first thing you lose, right? And I also heard people say, if you go back out, none of these are original sayings, by the way, which proves I'm an alcoholic. I heard people say, when you go back out, remember your disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups, waiting for you. That's not true. That is not true. My disease was not in the parking lot doing push-ups. It was doing push-ups and squats and pull-ups and everything it could do. And he brought his friends and they were pissed. Yes. It took me a long time. I did not understand what that meant. Like they would always say that in meetings. And I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? Mm -hmm. So for anybody else that feels baffled by that, because I was really baffled by that statement, it just means that your addiction is getting stronger. Even if you're not actively engaging, it continues to get stronger. And when I put something above my sobriety and it collapsed, and then my sobriety goes down with it, and then I pre-plan this relapse because I'm dumb. And when when I went back out, my disease was so much stronger than it was when I originally quit. So much stronger. You know, years ago when I would, would be an active alcoholism, uh, I would probably start drinking at, you know, nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, granted, that would last all day, but I would just, I would pace myself. You know, just, I would get right to that point where I was feeling really good. And then I would just wait a little bit, let it settle down. Then I'd get back in and then I'd let it settle back down. Then I'd go drink some more. When, when I went back out, I can tell you the day, it was July 31st of this year, and it came back so strong and so hard, and the drinking would start at 6 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, liquor stores aren't open at 6 o'clock in the morning, so I had to be creative, and I would buy more than I needed the night before. But there was no up and down when I went back out. I would start at six o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't stop. I, and nothing could stop me. Nothing would stop me. Cause I, I was back, I was back to that mode where I'm an alcoholic. I, w- I was going to my own pity parties and I just, I, I went right back to that. I don't care mode again. I don't care that I'm an alcoholic. I don't care that I'm hurting the people around me. And, um, a word of caution, listen, when they say your disease is waiting for you, it is waiting and it is much stronger. 
even when I took breaks, right? I did a break for 30 days once, um, never with the intention of stopping forever, but really just taking a break. I did 30 days once and I did 60 days once. And even after those brief times of not drinking, when I started drinking again, a thousand times worse. Mm -hmm. It was a thousand times worse than before. And it would blow me away because I drank so excessively already, you know, like I almost couldn't fathom drinking worse. But each of those times when I started drinking again, it was way worse. And it's like, wow, I didn't even know I could do this. And I think part of that is when I would hear when I was sober, you know, for those two and a half years, and I would hear people say, you know, be careful. If you go back out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be worse. I, I would think back to when I was an active alcoholic. I, I would say, it can't get any worse. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. So, so you must be lying to me. It couldn't be worse than falling backwards into your bathtub with your two daughters in the other room. I couldn't fathom even like how I could drink more because right. I drank so much. Right. And and for me, it was my whole life, right? I didn't have to take any hours off of drinking because I was a bartender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my whole life literally was drinking and alcohol. Right. And I couldn't even fathom how I could up the ante. But I did. Well, and, and <laughs> I, I was, definitely found my way. And I was a pass out drinker. And so I would think to myself, how could you drink more than enough to pass out? What am I going to drink while I'm passed out? Right. Well, it, believe it or not, you can. You can drink more than you thought you could. I can see my progression now. Like I started, you know, forever. I was a beer drinker. Most of my 20s, I was really predominantly a beer drinker. I always had a love affair with tequila, but I didn't get too crazy with it. We rode motorcycles and all that kind of stuff. So I had to have some semblance of normalcy. Um, Also, I'm a control freak. So I don't like the out of control part. I never wanted that part. (laughs) But so I can see my progression where I went from beer maybe have a couple of shots here and there to beer and tequila pretty consistently to beer, tequila. And then at the very end of my drinking, I added rumple mints because it was a hundred proof, right? So the rumple mints would just get me right there quick. And I was 97 pounds back then. Like I didn't eat food anymore, hardly at all, you know? So yeah, I just kept increasing the severity. And it's, <laughs> I it, it's, it's, I was going to say it's funny, but it's not. It's weird that you can't see that progression when you're in active alcohol. When you're in it. And, and, you know, now that I'm sober again and I look back on all of it, by look back on all of it, I mean the last 35 years. Mine was beer in the beginning and lots of it all the time. And then it became wine. I was never a wine drinker, but uh, wine would get me there quicker than beer would. And so I would just drink wine. And I always thought, and this is not a new thought to most alcoholics, I always thought, as long as I'm not drinking hard liquor, I'm not a full-blown alcoholic. I have a drinking problem, but I, my drinking problem's with wine. I mean, everybody drinks wine, right? As long as I don't buy hard alcohol, I'm not a real alcoholic. But it went from wine, then it went to whiskey, and then it went to vodka. And... I don't know why vodka came into the game other than I had heard rumors that they, it's harder to smell on your breath or something. I don't know. And then it, it was exclusively a hard alcohol. I, I wouldn't even drink beer because it was a waste of my time. Mm. You know, why am I going to drink a beer? That's not really going to do it. I love hearing all of our different outlooks and how we rationalize things and how we thought about mm-hmm. things. For me, I always stuck with beer because I needed to always have a drink in my hand and beer lasted the longest, mm. right? So I could have a beer and and it would last longer than anything else because anything else I would just, it was a shot or even if I got a tequila neat because tequila is my greatest love. If I got a tequila neat, I still kind of did it like a shot you know? <laughs> like, or it would just be a couple of drinks. So I had to always have the beer mm-hmm. to anchor me. I, I can remember the day couldn't point it out on the calendar, but I can remember the day that I stopped pouring whiskey into a glass. Mm -hmm. And it's the most ridiculous reason in the history of the world. But in my mind, why would I waste the time pouring that into a glass when I could just drink it straight out of the bottle? I'm not mixing water into it. I'm not putting anything in it. I'm just drinking it right out of the glass. And, And then I thought, man, Scott, you're a raging alcoholic now. You don't even pour it into a glass. You don't even have the class to pour it into a glass. You're just a 
hobo drunk drinking it right out of the bottle. And that's, <laughs> oh God, it was awful. So did you hide it? Like when you started drinking again, were you trying to like keep it quiet and hide it? Like you talking about recently when I went out? Recently. Oh yeah, of course I did. I, I tried to hide it from everybody. I, here's the thing. I tried to hide it from myself. I still live alone. My, you know, my girls are grown. Uh, I'm not married. And I would hide the bottles when I was done in the house. Wouldn't throw them in the trash. I would hide them in the house. And, and I did that also years earlier when the girls would only come over you know, for half the week. And it was usually Wednesday night and weekends. Um, so on a Monday, let's say it's just some arbitrary Monday. Um, and you could do this you know, five years ago or you could do this uh, five months ago. I would finish a bottle of vodka and I always bought pints and I would finish a pint of vodka and then I would go find somewhere in the house to hide it. Who the hell am I hiding these from? I know that I just drank it. Right. There's no kid in this house. There's no wife. I'm hiding it from whom? God? He knows where they are. I'm hiding them from myself because I can't admit to myself. It's horribly insane. Yeah. And then the day of when it was trash day, I would remember, you know, because it, it was always the same kinds of places, you know, I, I would hide them in sports coats jackets because I, I have a ton of sports coats from my when I used to wear suits to work. Listen, when I do interventions and we take the person to treatment before they come home, I always go with the parent or partner and go through all the hiding spots and People think I'm insane when I start mm -hmm. going through suit coat pockets, but mm -hmm. I'm like, this is one of the number one hiding spots. Yeah, that's where I would put them. And then on trash day, I would go up to the master closet and I would just pull them all out of the suit coat, uh, suit coats, throw them into a trash bag, throw it out in the in uh, in the trash can, and then take it out to the street. That's so funny. We're so fearful of kind of being caught or mm -hmm. anybody knowing, you know. And even like you're saying, hiding it from yourself. At the end of my drinking, the last couple of years, I drank Michelob Ultra and they sell it, bottles in 20 packs and I would go through a 20 pack every day. Right. So if you walked in my garage, the whole perimeter of my garage was just stacked with boxes because I'd put all the empty bottles back in and just stack them up because I didn't want to take them to the dumpster every day because I didn't want anybody to see me. Right. taking an empty 20 pack to the dumpster every day. Well, they might think you're an alcoholic. Right. Again, the insanity <laughs> of it. But I was okay with being an alcoholic. But I think because it was my environment, right? It was normal to be an alcoholic in my life, right? Everybody I knew was an alcoholic. But yeah, it's just fascinating. The insanity of it is fascinating. So how did it end? Like, how did it all come crashing down this time that made you get sober again? It was... Um uh, Sunday in late September, and I had a friend who was supposed to come over to the house to watch the Chiefs game that day, and it was a 325 game. And I was in my office, and I was on the computer looking up some news stories, maybe to talk about the next day. And of course, I'm drunk. You know, it's like it, I remember exactly. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting in the office drunk, and the office is right next to the garage. And I hear the garage door open and close. And I'm like, man, my friend's here early. You know, the game's not for another hour and a half. And so I turn off the computer and I go out into the living room. And sitting in the living room is my mom, my brother, and my two daughters. And I walked out of the office. Now, I'm drunk, but I can still remember this. And they're all just sitting there. And nobody's got a smile on their face. And I walk into the living room and I said, I knew this day was coming. And I'm so glad it's here. Hmm. Oh, I love that you share that too, because people get so scared about doing an intervention on somebody they love, and they're so fearful of how angry that person is going to be at them, right? Especially when you hire a professional interventionist, because now there's been all this conversation behind their back, and people are yeah. so fearful of that. But that really, what you just said, that is the truth. Yeah. Usually the person is so grateful because we... On the inside, we know how bad it is, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of stuff that nobody else knows. There's all kinds of details that the outside people don't know. But we know all of our details. We really know how bad it is. And most of the time, people are so grateful for oh, the lifeline. Gosh. Well, and, and I, I can't tell this story very quickly but without mentioning my, my co-host on the radio, Dana, was the first one to realize that something was wrong. And she had talked to me about it, and she 
you know, was saying, I, I, I can't do a show with somebody who's, who's drinking. I just can't. And I know you've relapsed. Um, Scott, I love you so much, but you've got to get better. And what I didn't realize was she was in contact with my brother the whole time. So my brother organized the intervention. And, uh, and God bless Dana. When I was in rehab, uh, I remember calling her one day. And, you know, I think she was afraid to answer the phone or something. But uh, she said, how are you holding up? And I said, oh, my God, you know, this, this is a godsend. And I, I told her, I said, you know, I was upset with you in the beginning for going behind my back and, and getting my brother involved. I still to this day don't know how she, how she got his number. He lives in Wichita. I said, but you saved my life. And I hope you know that. You saved my life when you did what you did because I was, I was on the fast track to killing myself again. Yeah. And I, I really was. Yeah. I was going to die. And anyway, so we had the intervention and, and I told you this, this story. My, I, 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 initially, I resisted the idea of going to rehab. I thought rehab was for losers. That's where losers go. And uh, I'll just quit on my own. My family's insistent that I go to rehab. And um, I said, no, nah, it'll affect their show, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, and finally, my daughter just said what she said about, you know, don't call me again. And uh, I told my brother, I said, start the car, let's go. And um, and off I went. <laughs> Treatment is such a good way to go to, though, because it just lets you kind of hit a pause button on I all the stuff. You know what I mean? Like you yep. just get to kind of chill, take a breath, yes, get recentered, figure out which way is up. You know, because we don't, we're not in a good spot. <laughs> you know, at the spot. end, right. we are not in a good spot. Well, and I, I remember when I went to treatment, I was the first two days. They weren't hard. You know, quitting drinking for me is not, is not hard. It's it's quitting the thinking, mm-hmm. and um, I have to change the way that I think. But I, I remember in, in treatment by the third day, I was like, this is exactly what I needed. Yeah. Thank God I'm here to surround yourself with other people on a 24-hour basis who know exactly what you're going through and have probably done worse. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was exactly what I needed when I needed it. How is your recovery different today? Well, I put my sobriety back on top <laughs> where it belongs. Uh I, I just got lazy in my recovery. I, I I think the first time that I got sober, seriously got sober, probably for the first year and a half, I did it right. You know, I was working the steps, calling people all the time. And then I just got cocky about it. You know, I, the, the obsession was gone. I could go into a, a bar, you know, for a, for a work event. No problem. Didn't even think I'll just have a glass of water or Coke or whatever. Um, but I just got lazy in my sobriety. I stopped calling people, stopped going to meetings. It would go once a week, maybe, if I felt like it. Um, I stopped reading books. Uh, I just got lazy about it. And this time, I've been to hell and I've seen it. I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't go back. If I, if, I, if I go back, I'm dead. We don't get to stay sober just because we want to. You no. know, it's like anything else in life. It, it takes work. You know, I have to do something on a daily basis to maintain what I have or to excel yep. beyond what I have today. Well, I mean, but right before I came here, I, I spent the entire drive to your studio on the phone with my sponsor. That, I mean, if you go through my call log on my phone now, I, I list people who are alcoholic a certain way in my phone. That's all you'll see are people in my phone log who are alcoholics because I'm on the phone when when I leave here, I'll, I'll spend the entire drive home talking to an alcoholic. That was a pivotal moment for me really early in my recovery. I remember standing in the parking lot of the meeting uh, with my sponsor and he got like three phone calls while we were standing Mm -hmm. there, text messages, right? It was all this activity on his phone and every single conversation he had was with another recovering person, mm-hmm. right? right? And with somebody from our group or whatever. And I remember thinking, and I was probably only a few months sober. And I remember thinking, that's what I want. I want my whole life to be recovery. And I had no idea what that would look like. I certainly couldn't foresee what I'm doing today, but I just knew that I wanted all everything surrounding me. I wanted it to be the love and the hope and the inspiration of recovery. I just loved it so much. Yeah, and that, that was part of my problem, was I had stopped immersing myself around alcoholics. And God, we're the best people, too. I, know. I mean, we are the funniest, kindest. Happiest. 
happiest. Mm -hmm. We are such incredible people. When we're sober. When we're sober, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're pretty good. Even when we're drunk, we're still fantastic humans. Like we always say in hate the addiction, not the addict, right? We are really fantastic people. But that drunk version of me, I mean, that guy's a handful. Well, I I always say we're good people who make bad decisions. Yeah. And I've got my fair share of bad decisions. But, but you know, and this isn't me being... um, conceited or anything, but I I know that I'm a good person. Yes. I know that I care deeply about other people. For people who are close to me, I would do anything, anything you ask. I I give without expecting, but like you, you start pouring liquor into me. And it's not that I become an angry person. Like I said, I was never an angry drunk. I I just, I, I become an uncaring person. The only thing I care about is myself and where's my next drink coming from. Yeah, it's like a shift in motive. Yeah. You know, when I'm sober, my motive is one thing. But if I'm drinking, my motive is very different. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing and what I'm seeking and how I'm doing it. When I'm sober, my motive is to do good for other people. And when I'm I'm drinking, it's not to do bad. It's just not to do good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's to kind of go to this gray area where... You know, I'm like like many of us, I'm, I'm an isolating drinker. I will just go home and isolate. So I'm not driving around trying to kill somebody. I'm not um, hurting anyone physically. But what, what I'm also doing is I'm not doing good. I'm not helping. Right. You know, I'm not being present in other people's lives who care about me. So what are some of your go-to rituals today? Like you're back in the game, you're strong, you're feeling good. What are some of your favorite rituals? I mean, you talked about obviously talking to other alcoholics and being surrounded by other alcoholics. What are some other things that are important? I'm a Groundhog Day recovering alcoholic. Every day has to be the same. I'm almost kind of out of sorts because uh, I don't normally do podcasts. Mm -hmm. So this is a a change of pace for me. Um, But what, what I've learned about myself and lots of people who are alcoholic are probably the same way. The two most dangerous things for me are being lonely and being bored. Lonely, I can tolerate. Bored, I can't. You know, everybody needs to be alone once in a while. You just need some me time and just to get away from other people. But I can't be bored even when I'm alone. So what I've started doing, I stopped, I stopped keeping a calendar. I know what I'm doing today. I, do, I literally take one day at a time, literally. I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow, but it's probably going to look a lot like today. Every hour of every day has to have something planned in it from the second I get up. And if I don't have something planned per se, I don't, I don't write it down, but I just in the morning, I just think to myself, all right, what am I doing today? If there's an hour free or two hours free, I'm finding something to do. I have to find something to do. My house, by the way, has never been so clean. It's the cleanest house on the block, I guarantee you, because all I do is clean it when I have free time. But listen, that's so important because when your head is a crazy place, the last thing you want to do is get quiet and spend Mm -hmm. quality time with it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's important to be busy until you're at a place when some of that calms down a little bit. And for some of us, it doesn't, right? Like I have to be busy. I'm a busy person. I like to be busy. The the one thing that I've really incorporated in in this round of sobriety is even on days like today, when I feel good, I know I'm not going to drink today. Um, I, I am, like I was saying earlier, I'm, I'm reaching out to so many alcoholics on a constant basis. Um, and that was something I didn't do at the end the last time. I'm, I'm going to meetings whether I feel like it or not. It's, it's 9.50 in the morning. I'm feeling pretty good. The thought crosses my mind. I think I might skip that 10 o'clock Zoom meeting. I don't, I don't need it today. I'm feeling really good. I've got things to do, man. Those leaves don't rake themselves. And 10 o'clock rolls around and I force myself to sit down and get on a meeting yeah. every single day, no matter what, Yeah. no matter what. Oh, and I'm reading books again. Oh, anything good? Yes. The big book. <laughs> it's really good. It is really good. <laughs> it is good. It's one of my top picks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, final question, favorite question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? Oh, gosh. I don't even know where to start. I'll give you one, though, that, that would certainly make the top five. I'm happy again. I'm so 
happy again. And, you know, that was one thing when I had gone back out. Dana, when she approached me at work one day and told me she knew I had relapsed, she goes, I can just hear it on the air. You're not happy on the air anymore. You used to cut jokes and laugh, and and now you're just so serious, and, and you're almost angry. And uh, Or she didn't say angry. She said something like, you're, you're just aggressive. And looking back on it, I didn't see it at the time, but she was right. And now, being back in sobriety and being sober again and trying again, there are moments you couldn't kick the smile off my face. I am just so happy to be alive, to be present, to remember, to remember what I did the night before and not have to look at my phone and think, oh God, oh, I, I texted that person. Oh, I wrote that. Um, it's just, you, you realize that life really is worth living, really worth living. And it's so fun to be here, you know, and do stuff for other people. God, I, I mean, I, I could sit, we could do a 24 hour pro- podcast on, on the, the the things that I've, oh God, yeah, I it's agree. such, it's such a good place to be. I agree. Scott, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate you sharing your story and being so open and really grateful for your daughters to have you back and for you to have you back. Pleasure was mine. It was an honor to be here. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast, candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.